Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. To turn with me to 2 Corinthians. As I said last week, we're, we're taking a little bit of a break from our kind of normal way of, of going through the, the preaching schedule. And we're going to spend some time looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We're going to look this morning at the first seven verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I'll read those verses now, and then we'll, then we'll pray. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Most gracious Father, as we look at your word, I ask that you would help me by your spirit this morning, that I may preach clearly in the power of the spirit, that we, your people, with our eyes set on Christ, might be strengthened in our faith. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, Paul had a long kind of history with the Corinthian church that that was a little bit checkered. There there was a lot of tension at different times with the Corinthians. We know that that Paul probably went there sometime. His first trip there to, to plant the church was in AD 50 or 51, somewhere in there. And following that, he wrote a first letter to them not, you might think, oh, that's 1 Corinthians. No, it actually wasn't 1 Corinthians. It was another letter that he wrote that we don't actually have anymore. Uh, and he references this letter in 1 Corinthians. So that's how we know that that happened. And he wrote from, from Ephesus. And, and there were two groups of people from Corinth that came and visited Paul in Ephesus and brought him news. One of them were, were the, the infamous group of Phoebe's people that came with, with a little bit of gossip about what was going on back uh, in Corinth. And, and in response, Paul wrote another letter, and that's what we know as 1 Corinthians. But it was actually his second letter that he had written to them. They didn't really uh, like what Paul had to say in that letter. They apparently didn't really pay attention. So he made a surprise visit uh, to Corinth to deal with some really hard issues. And, and we know from the Bible that, that this unplanned visit was actually a really, really difficult visit because he had to say some really, really difficult things to the Corinthians. Following that, he wrote another letter that he describes in the letter we're going to read today as writing it out of much affliction and anguish of heart and through many tears. See, at this point, there was a a lot of tension between Paul and and the Corinthian church. And and this tension existed for a number of reasons. On the one hand, they were up to all kinds of of just wild stuff within the church. And Paul had to call them out on that. 
But, but on the other hand, they were beginning to see Paul's life and see that, that, that as I talked about with the kids, his life didn't always go well. And so they were starting to think, maybe this isn't the kind of apostle we want to listen to. Maybe we want to listen to one of these other guys that calls themselves an apostle who weren't one of the twelve. One of these other guys who, who seem to have it all together and who aren't getting beaten and left for dead. Maybe that's kind of the person that we want to follow and listen to. And so Paul writes this letter and, and he, he's, he's apparently addressing kind of all of these issues and challenging them. And Titus takes it to him. And, and apparently the Spirit worked through this letter so that the Corinthians kind of had their eyes open and were like, oh, wait a minute. We need to listen to this guy. And so then he, he wrote this fourth letter that we have that we know as 2 Corinthians. And, and he's kind of beginning to, to build the relationship back. And so when we come to this letter, it, it's by far his most personal and kind of existential, like, like dealing with the, the reality of existence and, and what it means to be alive and, and be in Christ. It's by far Paul's most personal letter that we have. And, and it's really kind of shocking when you, when you read 2 Corinthians and compare it to all of the other letters, like, like Romans and, and Galatians and Ephesians that are, that are setting out in Colossians, these, these glorious theological statements. And then you've got 1 Timothy and, and 2 Timothy and Titus that are kind of teaching about ministry. And, and, but then you come to 2 Corinthians and it's just kind of Paul pouring out his heart to these people. And, and talking about being heartbroken and talking about despairing to the point that, that he thought he would die. I mean, it's, it's, it's really just an incredibly human letter. Now, that's not to pit like good theology in these other letters against the, the existential stuff that we have in this letter. It's really kind of the opposite. Because the apostle to whom we have so often turned to, to kind of straighten out our theology what we learn is that he was not at any point in his ministry kind of operating from some ivory tower from which he dispensed these theological treatises, but was unattached from real life. So 2 Corinthians is helpful for us because it doesn't simply announce a theology or call us to believe certain things in the midst of our struggles as if to say that behind every struggle in this life is not believing the gospel. Instead, what 2 Corinthians does is it gives us some helpful insight into the very real struggle that it can be to hold on to the gospel and live with others in light of the gospel and in the face of adversity. If, if you've been around for any time at all, you know that's true. You, you know that, that it's one thing to say, okay, here's what the gospel is, and, and here's these doctrines, and, and, and I, I can tell you, like, you know, I can answer Westminster Catechism questions and, and kind of explain all this doctrine in this beautiful way. But then you meet people, even Christians, even sometimes Christians that are sitting in this room with you. And you're like, man, it's way easier to say the right stuff and affirm the right things, then live with these knuckleheads in light of that same truth. And that's what Paul's dealing with. Now, I want to say something. I'm not going through 2 Corinthians because I think that, oh, in this church there's some deep tension, and I'm just going to kind of passively root it out by taking us on this journey through 2 Corinthians. No, that's not what I'm doing at all. 
That's not, that's not the goal here. So I want to put that to rest. Rather, I feel compelled to go through this because I know that in all of our lives, there is all kinds of suffering. I know that everybody in this room has, has faced or is facing any number of very difficult, very heart-wrenching, very painful situations. And I think in 2 Corinthians, Paul, better than anywhere else, teaches us how the gospel deals with that and how we need to think about those situations in light of the gospel. See, we've often, or at least I have often, kind of had this view of Paul as this kind of ultimate theological alpha dog from whom like authority and gravitas just flowed with every breath and word. That, that's, I mean, I've got, I almost brought him. I've got this whole stack of books about Pauline theology that, that have different paintings of Paul from history on the cover. And they're all these like, yeah, I mean, he's a little bit bigger and this big beard and his stern look. And it's like, that's not the Paul of the Bible at all. At all. And we're going to see that here. The, the Paul of the Bible wasn't this kind of celebrity pastor that, that, that you gave top billing so that people would come to your conference and, 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 and he spoke flawlessly and his rhetoric was persuasive and he carried himself confident. No, that wasn't Paul. The Bible's very, very clear that that's not who Paul is. It gives us a picture that, that, that Paul is a man full of weaknesses and just clinging with everything he has to Jesus. That's the picture of Paul. That's the apostle that was sent to the Gentiles. This guy that, that, that didn't have it all together, that, that was broken, that people didn't even apparently like to look at that much. And, and wasn't a very good speaker. Apparently, as we, as we learn in 2 Corinthians, he was very good at, at writing a letter. But when it came to preaching, not so much. Literally, someone fell out of a window because they fell asleep listening to him and died. And he had to bring him back to life. That's not like, I'm going to put that on my preacher's CV. Killed a guy with my preaching. But this is who Paul was, a man full of weaknesses that, that Jesus called and sent out as an apostle to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to the world. Now, yes, he tells us in Philippians 3, he circumcised the day people, he kind of has this kind of Jewish bragging list. But, but guess, guess what was true about that? No one seemed to really care. They would still beat him. They would still leave him for dead. They would still imprison him. They weren't impressed by, by what he had to offer. And so when Paul's writing this letter, he's writing it from that perspective. He's writing it from the perspective of knowing weakness firsthand. Not just like giving a nod to it. Like, oh yes, I know some of y'all are weak and it's okay to be weak. No, no. He's writing it from one who is weak and who, who brings nothing to the table. And here's why this is so important. Mark Seifried writes this, The life of the apostle is nothing other than the life of a Christian in large screen display. Our hope for you is confirmed knowing that as you are partakers of suffering, so also you are partakers of salvation. 1-7. As we have noted, the Corinthians implicitly recognized this truth 
and for that reason prefer other apostolic claimants who've made their way to Corinth and who confirm their calling with outward displays of speech and power. Did you hear that? Paul's writing from this place of weakness. And the Corinthians, they implicitly understand the kind of the principle that, that as goes the leader, so goes the, 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 the organization or, or whatever. They implicitly understand that if, if the apostles, if the guys that are, that are sent out by Jesus to plant the church, if their life is hard, then that's what we can expect as Christians. And so they started finding these guys who were willing to call themselves apostles whose lives looked a little bit rosier, whose lives were a little bit easier, whose lives were a little bit more comfortable and who did show up and, and were powerful in speech, who did show up and were impressive. Why? Because that's what they wanted. That's what they wanted to be. And so when we come to 2 Corinthians, it's important for us to, to see exactly what gospel ministry looks like. It's important for us to see exactly what being a Christian looks like. That, that it's not a path to, to glory. It's, it's, it's not a, a path to, to getting it all. It's, it's not a path to, to, to living your best life now even. It, it's a path to suffering. Because, see, we're a lot like the Corinthians. We're easily convinced that there, there was a strong positive correlation between effective ministry and worldly glory. And that correlation was often lacking in Paul. He gives us a decidedly cruciform vision of ministry in this life, reminding us that we are not called to the way of glory, but called to the way of Christ. The question that Paul puts before the Corinthians in this letter, and the question that he puts before us, and a question that I have found myself having to work through a lot lately, is whether or not I'm up for that. Whether or not I'm up for the way of the cross, rather than the way of glory. See, Paul is doing nothing other than reiterating what Jesus had already said about ministry and the Christian life. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark Seifert again says, Indeed, Paul's contention with the Corinthians finally has to do with the profound hermeneutical question as to whether the human being has the capacity of recognizing, understanding, and judging the work of God within the world, or whether it is the work of God that recognizes and judges the human being. The battle, and Paul is not ashamed to call it a battle, has, not to, has to do not merely with false judgments, but with false judgment, namely the self-seeking reasoning that is inherent to every human being. That's what 2 Corinthians turns on its head. That successful ministry, that, 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 that thriving in life, that, that, that successful Christian life might not look like glory in this world. And in fact, Paul says, doesn't look like glory in this world. That's so hard for me and, and I think for a lot of us to wrap our minds around. 
That, 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 that a faithful Christian life doesn't necessarily look like glory in this world. It might look completely different than that. It might look the exact opposite of that. And in fact, the Bible repeatedly tells us to expect that. But we all have a tendency to spend so much time because we're all at some level pain averse we all have a tendency to spend a lot of time trying to get out from under that reality and trying to, to find this, this way of glory rather than walk the way of the cross. So as we, as we come to this letter, Paul opens with his kind of normal benediction or, or, or normal greeting, normal kind of way of opening a letter in this time period in history. He announces himself and, and says something about himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And, and right there, even though the, in, in most of Paul's opening letters, in most of his greetings, he tells us that he's an apostle by the will of God. But when we read and, and know what's going on in Corinth, we read that as, as kind of the first defense that, Paul's, that Paul is offering about himself. There are other apostles. There, there are these, as he's going to call them later, somewhat snidely, super apostles. They're out there. But I am an apostle in my weakness, with all my failures, with all my flaws, with, with all the, the critiques that you can make. I'm an apostle according to the will of God. That's where my authority stands. And, and the rest of his, his opening is, is pretty standard. He Timothy is working with them. He's writing to the church at Corinth and, and to the whole region of Achaia, which is kind of the southern third of, of the Balkan Peninsula, the peninsula that makes up uh, what we know as Greece. Uh, so, so apparently these issues that, that were in the Corinthian church had, had spread out regionally because Corinth, and it makes sense, Corinth was kind of a hub for that area because of the particular place that it's located. It was, it was a prime commercial uh, shipping spot and it connected to the, uh, to the east, to Asia, and to the west directly to Italy, and you could get up into Greece and, and, and up kind of north, what is now Eastern Europe. You could get there by land. It was just a prime spot shipping spot. And so it was a very, very wealthy area, a lot of coming and going. And so undoubtedly what was going on in Corinth had spread out. And then Paul moves in to this doxological section of the letter. Again, a, a common move for, for Paul's letters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. This is a, a very standard opening line. But it's also an incredible, incredibly rich opening line. Because Paul begins, as, he, as, as you read through the rest of this, we read through it earlier, he's immediately going to be talking about affliction. And so he opens with this statement about who God is. And it would be easy for us to see God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, kind of as, as, as almost kind of a throwaway statement, just a way to get the letter going. I mean, it's what he just said in his benediction. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, uh, from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's kind of using some of that same language, and he, and he uses this language in a lot of letters. But I think there's a lot more going on here. Perhaps he's simply letting a phrase kind of roll off his pen, but perhaps there's something else going on. Perhaps, perhaps Paul's driving at something that's very important 
for us to understand as we think about what it means to share in the suffering and comfort of Christ. Perhaps Paul understands that if we're going to talk about affliction, if we're going to talk about the Christian life, if we're going to talk about the pain of the Christian life, the place that we have to start is fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. Because there can be comfort in suffering only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So that's where Paul starts. The problem of evil and suffering in the world has been this, this kind of ongoing point of philosophical inquiry and debate for generations. Generations upon generations. And, and every time it's been offered as an objection to the existence both of God or, or of any other God, like the, the God of the Bible or any other God, that, that men have attributed such characteristics as you know, being good and, and being powerful and being all-knowing and, and all those kinds of things. But to put it simply, the issue at work in this philosophical question is that, that man, that, that we cannot for the life of us figure out how such a God could exist alongside the evil and suffering that we see in the world. We wonder both how he could have allowed it in the first place and why he has not already done something about it. And so we conclude, at least the philosophical argument does, that such a God then must not exist. However, here in Paul's statement, we have a glimpse at the answer to the question. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How we understand our suffering and find comfort in it in light of Christ is going to be developed throughout this letter. But here we have the groundwork laid. We can only begin to understand God's response to suffering if we understand him to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is only in Christ that we can make sense of our suffering. It is only in Christ that we are ultimately brought out of our suffering. And it is only in Christ that we can relate to God as Father and not as Judge. The second statement that Paul makes about God as Father is that he is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. God is the Father of Jesus and God is the Father of mercies and comfort go together. It's kind of a parallelism. They explain each other. He is the father of mercies and God of comfort because, precisely because, he is the God and father of Jesus. If God is to show us mercy, if he is to be the God he told Moses he is, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, all of that, if he's to be that God, it's only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. There is no such mercy from God apart from Jesus Christ. If he's going to be a comfort to us, if he's going to be merciful to us, it's only going to be because of Jesus. Further, if God is going to be a God of comfort to us, it's not because he is so transcendent that he's unaffected by all that affects us. But because the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and dwelt among us, so that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's why he's the God of comfort. Not because he's unaffected and transcendent and above it all, but because he entered into it and he knows the pain, he knows the temptation, he knows the struggle. 
And so the author of Hebrews can go on and say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, think about what he's saying. He's building on what Paul said. I don't know that he had read this letter, but it's the same idea. He's the God of Jesus Christ, God and Father of Jesus Christ. He's the God of, and Father of mercies and of all comfort. And so because Jesus came, we can now go to him for mercy and for comfort. See, if we separate God as Father of Jesus, we, we lose God as Father of comfort. Whatever mercy is received from God is found in Christ. Whatever comfort is found in him is found only in Christ. Paul then tells us that God acts toward us in perfect accord with how he is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy is God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. It is God who stays our soul. It is God who gives peace in the midst of trials. It is God who heals. It is God who opens the floodgates and meets our needs as we've seen him do in the last few weeks. It is God who helps us mourn as those who have hope. It is God who forgives sins. It is God who directs our steps through difficult times. It is God who keeps us. And how? How does he do this? Undoubtedly, we could give countless answers. The the first answer, and we're going to come back to this, but I just want to hint at it because it's what Paul is drawing at, is that God comforts us in affliction through the body of Christ by a kind word or or maybe by a well-timed not word, by just being there with someone in their struggle, By, by the presence of those who share our hope when we wait in the hospital, by a needed meal that gives space to be, by grace of friendships in which we can be honest and be known. God comforts us in our affliction. But God comforts us in our afflictions also through the more formal ministry of the church, those means of grace, word, prayer, and sacrament that we offer week after week after week. By the word of the gospel reminding us once again that our present affliction that feels so eternal does not actually speak a truer word about us than the blood of Christ. By the prayers that lift us up to the throne room of God himself. By the sacraments, those holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. He comforts us in that. By the waters of baptism which, by which we are admitted to the visible church and which are a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of our engrafting into Christ, of our regeneration, remission for sins, and of our giving up unto the Lord through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. We are comforted in the waters of baptism. By the bread and the wine that we come and eat each week, by which we remember the death of Christ in our behalf and by which the benefits of Christ are sealed unto us. We're nourished in Christ and we participate in his body and blood. He comforts us at this table because we come here and we find our Savior. In all of this, God comforts us in our affliction through the ongoing work of the Spirit. By the work of the Spirit within us, who is our comforter and helper and guide. By the Spirit who bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. By the Spirit who intercedes for us when we don't even know how to pray. By the Spirit who continually applies the redemption purchased by Christ and all the benefits that come with us. 
God comforts us in our affliction. Are you comforted in your affliction this morning? I'm not asking, do you lack affliction? That's not being comforted in affliction. That's lacking affliction. I'm also not asking, does your affliction cause you no pain? That's not being comforted in affliction. That also is not lacking affliction. I'm asking, are you comforted in your affliction as one whose body has been wrecked by disease or assaulted by surgery is comforted by timely pain medicine? There's real pain involved. There's real struggle, but there's comfort in it. This comfort and affliction is the work of God in you and is possible and certain because of Christ who bore the wrath of God for us and will lead us through the suffering we share with him to comfort, to the comfort we will also share with him on that great day when he brings us into glory and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He will make it right. Until then, he will comfort us. It doesn't mean we won't have affliction. It doesn't mean the affliction won't hurt. It means he will comfort us. And to what end? It's the God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The first way that I gave of how God comforts us is through the body of Christ, through his people. And that's what Paul's driving at here. Yes, he's writing specifically about the apostolic ministry, but if we go on ahead, we begin to see that that he expects this to be true of all those to whom he is ministering. And so, so we, we can't boil down, we can't reduce God's purpose in our affliction and in comfort just to comforting others. There's all kinds of purposes that he may have, but we also can't deny such divine purposes in our affliction and in our comfort. If you've been comforted in affliction at some level, it is so that you can come alongside others who are hurting and offer them the comfort that you were given by God. In other words, you get to be the means for someone else by which God comforts them. That's part of the reason that he comforts us in our affliction, so that we will be able to offer the same thing to other people. So we will be able to look at people in the eye and say, he will see you through. So, so, that, so when we're at the hospital and, and our spouse is dying, we can look at someone who's in that position and we can say, he will walk with you through this. He will keep you. So that when we're scared to death of our children's future or of our own future because of something that's happened in our life, We look up and we find people that have been there as well. And they tell us, and we get to tell them if we're that person, he will be with you. He has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten you. He's not mad at you. He's with you. See, sometimes we forget, we've so, and maybe it's just me, I don't think it is, but 
we've so bought into this, this Corinthian problem that, that faithful Christianity, that faithful ministry looks like glory in this life. It looks like having it all together. And it looks like your kids all turning out just like you planned. And it looks like everything in your life turning out just how you planned. And, and, and it looks like having all the blessings of this life. And, and it looks like Instagram is what we think it looks like. And so when our life doesn't look that way, we just shut up. Because we don't want to admit that the gospel's not working for us. But we've missed the point. We've missed the point. What Paul is telling us is that the norm of the Christian life is being comforted in affliction. Ergo, the norm of the Christian life is affliction. It's not the opposite. So when when we buy into this Corinthian problem and begin thinking that a good Christian life looks put together and polished and all those things, and that leads us to shut up about our suffering, to shut up about our affliction, to not admit that we're weak, to not admit that we're needy, to not sing with all the gusto in the world, all the poor and powerless. We miss out on comfort. And we miss out on getting to comfort others. If you've been comforted, it's so that you can comfort the people around you. And here's what I can promise you. The people around you need to be comforted. Every one of them. They need to be comforted with the comfort with which God has comforted you. And so Paul continues, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Notice, he drives us straight back to Jesus. If we're going to suffer with him, we're going to be comforted. If we share now in his suffering, at some level, even though it's not yet no more tears, no more death, even though we're not there yet, even now we can share in his comfort. And he intends for us to be that for each other. He goes on and talks about the apostolic ministry. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, It is for your comfort, which you experience when you impatiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Think about for a second how he just interpreted his entire life. If I'm afflicted as an apostle, he says, it's for your comfort and salvation. If I'm comforted as an apostle, it's for your comfort. In other words, so that I can be there to comfort you when you're afflicted, as you presently are. Paul interprets his entire life as for others. That's how he's experiencing his affliction. That's how he's processing all of these things. If I'm afflicted, I get to be comforted by God, which means I get to comfort these other people that are afflicted. Now, we may say, okay, that's great for apostles. I love that for him. But we've got to understand, as as I said earlier, 
that the apostle's life is just kind of the Christian life on the big screen. This is the norm for all of us. This isn't a, a full theology of suffering. I get that. There, 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 there's so much that we should say about sovereignty and the providence of God and all of these different things. But at some level, it's got to enter into our reasoning. Whatever it is that you're enduring at this moment, whatever it is that you have endured, whatever affliction it is that you have been through or are going through or will go through, at some level, it is that you might be a comfort to others. Now, I'm going to be very honest. I cannot explain the question that you have. I can't answer it. Where is the justice in that? All I can say is look to the cross. That's all I can offer you for that question. Look to the cross. Where the truly unjust sufferer hung. But what I can say is that the affliction you face I might need to be comforted by you with the comfort that God gave you. The affliction I face, you may need to be comforted by me with the comfort God gave me. All of a sudden, Paul's addressing these Corinthians who who had learned to kind of look at power and and impressiveness, if that's even a word, for a mark of of true Christianity. That's where the goods are. And he's saying, no, no, no. The goods are with those who have been afflicted and have been comforted by God. Those are the people that have the goods. Those are the people that have what you need. Those are the people who have learned to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Those are the people who have learned to hear that word of the cross, that their sins are forgiven, and that the affliction that they face in this life doesn't speak a better word. Those are the people that can come to you in your darkest moments and say, yes, yes, but you are secure in Christ. God has not let you go. God has not abandoned you. God has not forgotten you. Cling to him. See, the people that have the goods are the people that have been through it. They're the ones that with a straight face can look at us when we're going through it and say, he won't abandon you. He won't abandon you. When you meet those older Christians that that, that have a few miles under their belt and they're just full of grace, they're full of mercy, they're like a a holy Ted Lasso kind of character. They're just nice and and, and merciful and gentle with everyone. And you start talking to them and you hear their story every time. They've been through it. They learned that mercy through suffering that you're now being comforted by. The comfort that they got when they were there. See, what Paul is telling the Corinthians and what Paul is telling us is stop running from affliction. That's not the Christian life. But run to the God of comfort that you might be comforted and that you might comfort others. That's the Christian life.
we want to walk in the path of Christ, that's what he did. Where did he go when he was facing the cross? He went to his father for comfort. And his comfort came at the resurrection. His comfort came at the ascension when he was given his kingdom. And ultimately, ours will too. But because he has gone before us, and because he has given his spirit, we can taste of it even now. Are we up for that? Are we up for admitting that we're afflicted and need to be comforted and pointing each other to Jesus for that comfort? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the hope of the cross. We thank you for comfort in affliction. And I ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus who suffered in our place to know the comfort that comes with Christ that we might be able to comfort one another. I ask that you would help us to get past trying to deny that we're afflicted, trying to to cling to glory in this life, and rather cling to the comfort that we find in Christ, that we might share it with one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.